Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of battery from rangefinders to trail cameras to your truck, car, batteries, anything, any type of battery that you can think of, visit your local Interstate Batteries retail location and talk with a battery specialist. For more information about the company and all of the batteries that these guys offer, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. The quarantine is in effect all across the United States. And we're going to be trying to produce some more content that we're going to put out on the podcast. Because of that, we're also going to be having a quarantine sale at bear-hunting.com. We're going to have a few select items up for sale that you can check out. We have some combo packages that include subscriptions, hats, and DVDs that you can buy in a couple of different packages. Check that out. And check out... W Hunting Supply during this time. I talked to Buddy Woodbury this week. They're up and running, full blast. And all your dog-related supplies, all your Garmin-related supplies, custom T-shirts, anything and everything that you need, check out W Hunting Supply. Also, hey, spring bear season's coming. This uh, The current situation that we're in in the United States 
by the time spring bear season gets here, I feel like things are going to be uh, in a little bit better shape by May and June. And hey, we're spring bear hunting. And check out Northwoods Bear Products. If you're hunting over bait in the spring, their commercial line of bear scents are stronger and more powerful than any natural food-related scent that you can put out. If you're running a bait, it only makes sense to invest in some commercial scents to use to attract more bears. We've used them all over the country. We use them on our personal baits here in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Northwoods Bear Products, check them out. And our buddies out out in Wyoming, the Western Bear Foundation. These guys are a nonprofit hunting conservation organization representing bear hunters out west, fighting the good fight, doing some good stuff. Check out Western Bear Foundation. If you're interested in some great spring bear hunting packages in Quebec, check out the unique packages that they have made. We've got 10 outfitters that the Quebec Outfitters Federation has requested make special bear hunting packages for bear hunting magazine subscribers and listeners. And if you go to our website, bear-hunting.com and click on our main banner on the webpage that says Quebec Outfitters, it will take you to the Quebec Outfitters page, which has 10 individual outfitters with individual U.S. packages built for spring bear hunting that range in price from as cheap as $700 for a week of bear hunting up to about $2,500. Each of these packages are going to include different things, and they're from reputable outfitters with our partners in Quebec. Hey, most spring bear hunting is taking place in late May and June, and so check out these packages from our friends at Quebec Outfitters. So we're at the global headquarters. Yep, finally here. Magazine. Yeah, I've got Jonathan Wilkins with me. Now you were here yesterday, so this is actually your second time at the global headquarters. Yep. But uh, your first time up here, coming up here and 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 being here was yesterday. Yep. And uh, and we went coon hunting last night. Yeah, we did. And so we're going to start this thing off cold and right from the beginning. With a sportsman's pop quiz. Okay. Okay. And so yesterday when we hunted together, I told you that I had a spiel that I give to anybody that hunts with me. The spiel is really designed, kind of the uh, nature of the spiel, spiel, the way it comes across is sort of designed for, for, for kids to be able to follow what's happening in the hunt. Yeah. Because coon hunting, a lot of times you're turning loose a dog and the and, like, all the action's happening out somewhere in the darkness, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, a kid could just, like, sit there and be like, what are we doing? Why sure, are we? Sure. Why are we, you know, what's happening? So, I, you know, kind of, I want them to know what's going on. I gave this, the same spiel to you mm-hmm. and to Kip Kruger. He's not here. And now James Brandenburg's heard the spiel because he's been with me before. So, I have a, Jonathan, I have a eight multiple choice questions. Actually, seven multiple choice questions and one Sort of uh, essay question. Yeah. Okay. And so we're going to see how well you're paying attention last night. Okay. Okay. All right. So we'll get right into it. Okay. Number one, coon dogs would be characterized by a certain trait 
that sets them apart from other hounds. That special trait would be A, webbed toes for swimming across rivers, streams, and bayous so they can pursue raccoons. B, they are tree dogs, meaning when the game they pursue climbs a tree, they stay there and bark. Special trait. C, they have special nasal receptors that are designed to pick up the vaporized oils of the musk glands of a raccoon. What is your answer? It's going to be B. B, they're tree dogs. You were paying attention. So the special trait about a coon dog, because there's all kind of hounds. That's what we were talking about, mm-hmm. is that there's there's running hounds, you know, like uh, dogs that they're, they're pursuing mammals, basically, furred animals that leave in scent trails. Yeah. And their whole purpose is just to run them, like a beagle. Yeah. A beagle would, he's probably never going to catch that rabbit. He's just running it. Or if a deer dog. Rabbit, yeah, or a deer dog, dogs, yeah. fox dogs, coyote dogs. They're just designed to push game. So if that animal ran up a tree, that dog would just leave that tree and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Go find another one, right? Okay, number two. You can you can keep your own score. Right. So you're, you're doing good so far. Okay, when coon hunting, the first time the dog barks when he smells a track is called A, striking a coon. B, finding a coon. C, locating a coon. That's going to be A. A, striking a coon. That is correct. You have... Two for two. Two for two. Okay, number three. A coon that is in a tree and has not come down from the tree for the night, meaning that it has not laid any ground scent, is called. And we we know that uh, coons primarily stay bedded up during the day and Mm -hmm. come out at night. Okay, so a coon that's been in a tree and hasn't come down is called an A, a sleeper, B, a layup coon, C, a nested coon. I don't know that this was part of the spiel. I mm, It was. It was? Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, I feel, mm-hmm. I, feel, uh, I feel like layup. Boom. Is, you got it. You nailed it. Layup coon. Hey, I'm going gonna, gonna to say something in my own defense, and this you wouldn't know this. So I am incredibly susceptible to being car sick and <laughs> if I'm in the backseat oh, and no. just driving over there. When you were giving me that, that spiel, oh, really? I, my stomach was churning. Ah, You should have said something, man. Oh, no, I was trying to absorb, but that's why you were talking. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, because I was like, don't throw up in this guy's truck. I am sorry. I'm but really maybe sorry that's, to hear that's that. why I missed that layup part. Because I, I I very distinctly remember the four different uh, barking barking right, right, mechanisms. Right, 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 right. But okay, but so I got that one. That wow. Works. Okay, man, you should have told me that. We would have we would have put you in the front. Oh, it's all right. Okay, number four. <laughs> this one gets this is this is going somewhere. Humans and one other primate are the only primates that don't have a vacuola. It's a spider monkey. Boom. A, spider monkey, spider monkey, B, gorilla, C, howler monkey. You chose spider monkey. You're correct. The only two primates that don't have a baculi, you can go look that up. If there's kids in the car or whatever. Uh, spider monkeys and humans, the only ones that don't have baculi. Good answer. So the coon that we ended up killing last night had a, well. A broken well, one. Yeah. It was broke. Infused back together. Yeah. Yes. I've got it right there, Jonathan. Oh, in this, yeah. Uh, I've got a bag here on my windowsill. It has about <laughs> six or seven baculi, and that one is very unique. 
Yeah. It's 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 been it's broken and sealed back together. Okay. Number five, how many rings does the average coon have on his tail? Six. Sometimes five. Bam. A special one would be seven. Perfect answer. That is correct. The majority of coons that we have here, anyway, maybe other places it's different. I don't know. But here, like 80 to 90% of the coons have six rings. If you have one with seven rings, it's good. Look, here's a coon right here. Let's count this. One, two, three, four, five. That one's got five. Yep. But he doesn't have a black spot on his tail. Usually they have a black. Mm-hmm. The, the tail ends the in a there, black yeah. and it sets. Okay. Number six. Are, are you good? I'm doing good. Okay, we got just a few more questions here. When a raccoon is being pursued by the dogs and climbs a tree, the dog makes an elongated bark signaling something is different from the track. Something is different on the track. It doesn't last long. Sometimes it's just one bark. This special bark is called a a locate bark, B, a founder bark, C, a tripper bark. Uh, locate bark. Boom. Nailed it. Yeah, so when they're, when they're trailing a coon and it runs up a tree... Sometimes they they lose the track. You know, they're moving it. Their their momentum is like carrying them in a certain direction, mm-hmm. and they're they're wanting to move in fast. To you know, I mean, they're running to catch the animal. That's what they're thinking. Yeah, I'm going to catch this thing. Well, a lot of times they'll blow past the tree and be like, "Hey, wait, scent's not here." So they circle back around, find that tree, and they let out this elongated. Long bark. It, it sounds like they're excited and pumped that it's up in the tree. That's it. Almost sounds like an emotional response. Yeah, it's, to, a, it's a cool sound. Like to for them going up. And and last night we didn't hear it real clearly because of uh, just how far they were away, mm-hmm. and because there's two dogs. If it's just one dog, and that dog has a really distinct locate bark. And I was talking about how in the hunting world, all these dogs are so different. I mean, you might have a dog that doesn't have a locate bark. I mean, like, oh, really? a very, they don't have a distinct one. Okay. Um, but like a really, you know, I mean, like inside of any animal, any kind of animal that you're evaluating for human usage, you know, like whether it be a mule or whether it be a dog or whether it be mm-hmm. whatever, you're like looking for these like nuanced things that set it apart. And so these are the kind of things we pay attention to. So a coon hunter would pay attention to what kind of locate does that dog have? That's what they might say. Okay. And so, and I, I was taught this and I was told this uh, when I first got fern and I didn't know too much about uh, this line of dogs. And it honestly didn't know that much about, well, I'd coon hunted for a long time, but I was learning more about coon hunting. A guy told me, an old veteran coon hunter hunted with me. And he said, that dog's got a million dollar locate. That's what he said. Really? And I was like, and then I've hunted with lots of the dogs that don't have a real distinct locate, but usually a good coon hunter Knows his dog's locate, even if it's really minor. Mm-hmm. But a five-year-old kid can call Fern's locate. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's got it. It's just long. And then when she's trailing, it's different. Okay, you're doing great. You're doing great. Okay. Uh, okay, here's the essay question. There's no multiple choice here. At what time period were coon hides worth the most money? And how much were they worth? Uh, okay, so... Uh, according to you yesterday, you said that this is all according to the spiel. So this has, you know, if I was wrong in any part of the spiel, yeah, like 
it's irrelevant. Like this is this the all spiel? Okay. about the spiel. Because yeah, I'd actually heard I'd heard this before, but I'd heard it slightly differently. But you said that the early '80s, we we're talking about Southern coon pelts, uh, you know, which is what we have here in Arkansas. That you know, you were looking at about thirty-five dollars for a pelt. Yeah. What had you heard before? I'd heard it was I hadn't heard into the '80s. I'd heard it was like seventy-seven, seventy-eight is when they were okay. getting okay. the most money for them. But yeah, yeah, you know, within five five or eight years there. Yeah. And that's probably that that could be true. I just know that in the mid eighties is when the bottom fell out of the market. Now tell me if you know if you've ever heard anything about this. Uh now I'd heard that when when those pelt prices were really high, that you know, traditionally we think about northern pelts being more valuable and worth more. And as I understand it, the two big fur markets even still are gonna be in Asia and in uh Europe, like specifically like Russia yeah. and China. But I, what I had heard was in the 70s that the market for furs, uh, specifically raccoons, was very hot in China. And because just statistically, a lady in China is going to have a smaller frame that the southern pelts that were uh, not as heavy hmm. were more in demand. Really? And so that's why, I mean, because like right now you couldn't get $3 for a, for an Arkansas coon hide. Right. You know? Right. But I mean, I don't even know what $35 would be like right now. That might be $60 or $70. It really would have been. I, one time I did, uh, I did, and it was just a Google search. It wasn't a real in-depth search, but a uh, minimum wage. I mean, mm -hmm. in the, in the seventies and it was not much. I mean, like a couple like, dollars or something. Yeah. Three or $4 minimum yeah. wage, something like that. It sounds bizarre, but I mean, when I was a kid in the nineties, minimum wage was $7. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, four dollars sounds like pennies, but so if you think about it like that, go out and tree a coon, skin it, sell the hide for thirty-five, forty dollars, even that's that's more than you can make in a day of minimum wage labor. Yeah, I told you yesterday. I said that's all I would have done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> is put up coon hides. Yeah, yeah. So okay, we discussed that. Okay, so now. The the questions are out of order. I should have asked you this question before we just discussed that because basically what we just discussed answers this question. But okay. I've got to read it, okay, because it's right. the final question. The cultural significance of the coon hound was embedded into the Southern culture primarily because. Okay. Okay. A, hillbillies loved cool dogs and hunting at night, so they memorialized the coon hounds as a cultural staple. That's a pretty good answer. <laughs> okay. The financial benefits of a good coonhound were significant, and thus they became to important they they became important to poor rural families. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Coonhounds were first used for hunting in the Mississippi Delta, and traveling writers often recounted their stories in the Western human humor literature of the mid eighteen hundreds. Uh. I mean, I think what you're shooting for is B, but you could probably say all of them, really. <laughs> yeah, B was the right answer. The financial benefits of a good having a good tree dog were valuable to people. Mm -hmm. Really was. I mean, like if you had a if you were working at a sawmill or were just a subsistence farmer in the Ozarks and the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, by the time we got up into the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, there was electricity in most places, but 
and you know society was just becoming more prosperous and a little bit more urban modern you know but boy back in the day if you had a good coon dog that was a legitimate player in the financial stability of your family or it could be no so there's man there's actually a book that i need to uh I need to send down to you. It's called Hunting and Fishing in the New South. Mm. It's by a guy named uh, Scott E. Giltner, who's a he's a college professor up in uh, northern Missouri. I did an mm. interview. I did an interview with him maybe six or seven months ago. But that book is a it's a really fascinating book, kind of academic in nature, but still very readable. Uh, but it talks about kind of the history of African Americans hunting and fishing in the mm. South, and uh, without going too far into that book, which I do highly recommend to folks if you're interested in any of that, but they talk about the the cultural significance of coon and possum dogs in the black community mm. during slavery and specifically in, uh, you know, so during the antebellum and in the postbellum. And it was actually, if you talk about financial resources, you know, people from the big cities in the north were coming down here in the years after the Civil War specifically to be guided by black hunters at night for coons and possums. Really? Oh, yeah. There's really cool pictures of like them, you know, like a, a black guide and his pack of dogs or his couple uh, dogs. Uh. And then, you know, what what folks would have called like a sport, you know, like a, yeah. a guy of means and kind of a suit and a hat standing mm. there with a bunch of coon pelts hanging. Huh. Uh, and it's. You know, coon coon hunting uh, has a real cultural significance in Southern Black culture, going back through slavery, uh, which is one of the reasons I I wanted to give it a shot with you. But yeah, man, I think it's been it has it wasn't just during the fur boom of the '40s through the early '80s. It was all the way back to you know 1800, 1850, yeah. 1875. Yeah, that's cool. Is that where uh, is that where um usage for food came into i mean like as far as you know hunting coons and yeah. stuff at night uh yeah so there was during slavery there was and i think sometimes this gets miscategorized because sometimes people say like you know there were these uh nice masters that would let slaves go hunt a little bit at night and really what it was was a way to not have to spend as much on f- food for slaves i see but there were there were slaves who were renowned and skilled for their, uh, you know, they'd, they'd have good dogs and they would go out at night and they would treat possums and coons and that would be used to supplement the slave's diet. Mm. And because of that, there became a cultural significance like in the South, in the deep South, even over to here in Arkansas, there's a, uh, and it's kind of dying out now, but there's a, a very culturally uh, significant meal of like baked raccoon and sweet potato or baked yeah. possum and sweet potato yeah and really like the only real remnant we have of that here is like the gillette coon supper yes. uh, which is like this big political event but uh you know this was this was something that was you know passed down through slavery and it's the same thing as like uh chitlins yeah or chicken wings these right. these kind of kind of marginalized Leftover, people eating yeah, this eating lo- marginalized food there you go and finding a way to make it delicious and special and culturally significant to yeah. you uh which is why i've been you know uh this is my first time hunting coons with dogs well, but i've been trapping it's them why and you brought them. coon to my house before the hunt yesterday yeah i mean so you tell me what you did to that that coon so you you came to my house and you had 
you'd you'd cooked this a while back, but we you you kind of well you tell me what you did. Yeah, man. So I had just uh, I had it was just a coon I had trapped over in the delta when I was I was actually uh, I was scouting duck holes and I put out some footholds, and then the next morning we went and ran the traps before we went and hunted, but uh, caught this coon over here off of the in the cash. Uh, Cash River, Cash River National Wildlife Refuge. And I just, you know, cleaned it and uh, quartered it up. I braised it, so I just seared it off. You know, season it, salt and pepper, whatever seasonings you enjoy. Braised it. Tell me what what that even means. Braising is uh, would be like cooking in an oven in a pan in sh- in shallow liquid. Got it. So uh, like. In a braise, if you ever took the liquid past halfway of the meat, it would no longer be a braise. You'd okay. start boiling. You start boiling, or probably more like a poach. Um, okay. But so I just seared seared off the meat in a cast iron pan, and then delays the pan just with some red wine and some stock, and put that all together in a pan, you know, with onions and peppers and garlic and just aromatics. Yeah. And covered it up and stuck it in an oven like at two fifty for three or four hours which is about the simplest way to prepare any game meat. It's essentially the prep, the preparation. I've heard you talk about doing asabuco with bear shanks or deer yeah. shanks or whatever. Uh, just did that. And then you've got just some really tender, palatable meat. You could do a, like that day we ate it just with mashed potatoes and I think collard greens that night. But I had some in the next couple of days. We ate some sandwiches and I had a little bit left over. So I just vac sealed and stuck it in the freezer. Yeah. And so then when I came down here, I put it in a different back bag with some uh, rendered wild duck fat. Little rendered bit of, wild duck fat. Yeah, a little bit of chili powder. And then we just kind of did, you know, like essentially an approximation of a sous vide to warm it up. And we did a, just like some Mexican street tacos that. And yeah. chopped onions, some cilantro, a little bit of salsa verde, and some hot sauce. Yeah. It was good, man. Yeah, man. It was, like you said, I think it got, it got a, little, a little more potent in the freezer. But... Uh, some, I've seen the same thing happen with bear meat, so I, I'm with you. Yeah, because you said you said that when it was fresh, and I mean you just cooked it. Oh, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't have been able to tell it was wasn't pot roast. Okay, and 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 so this time, I mean it wasn't a negative taste, but it just had a little bit of you know you could tell little, it wasn't wild. There's a little bit of wild in it. Same thing happens with bear. I think when you reheat it. Yeah, I don't understand it. Well, that happens with, I mean, that happens with a lot of stuff. Um, but, you know, if you if you get used to eating wild game, it's not, it was not unpalatable at all. No, no, no. No, I mean, if we weren't trying to critique it, and not that I was critiquing it, but, like, if we had just been, like, hungry and just were just eating to eat. Or if you didn't, if we folks would, didn't know that was coon meat, oh, it no. probably never would have registered. But no. there's still, but I was talking to your wife about it. There is still something... Even for me, like mentally, there's a there's a little bit of a mental hurdle hurdle to get past with a uh, with eating raccoon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought it was good. I thought it was good, and uh, and I've I've only eaten it one other time, maybe two other times. And the way we cooked it was just over an open fire, just an open flame. I mean, it was while we were in the field. Yeah, I know? saw that video. Yeah, I mean, we kind of just. I mean, and I, I want to say this too because you know we really do talk a lot about utilization of wild game meat as mm-hmm. like an essential part of hunting that makes it so valuable. Sure. There's also, and this falls within the parameters of the North American model of wildlife conservation too. One of the seven pillars of 
the North American model of wildlife conservation is uh, non-frivolous use of wildlife. So essentially, you know, there are these pillars that like guided North American hunters to this place where wild game populations were saved and ethics were solid. And so the idea is that you don't just go shoot something just for fun and leave it there. Yeah. I mean, like that's bad news. But non-frivolous use with the type of coon hunting that we're doing is depredation. I mean, it's like removing an unnatural number of animals from the landscape for the benefit of other wildlife mm-hmm. and for the benefit of themselves. Coon coon populations, because there's so much uh, unnatural food available in just the landscape, you know, whether it be agriculture, cattle farming, whatever they're f- eating on, populations can just skyrocket. And then raccoons get distemper and a bunch of different stuff, and you can have these massive die-offs, Okay, which coon hunters key into that stuff. I don't think we've had one around here in a while. But so anyway, so by hunting them, it helps them, and we harvest coons for their fur. I mean, coons are a fur-bearing animal. Legally, they are they are managed as a fur-bearing animal. Yep. Like So just for anybody that was listening that wouldn't understand this, a deer is not a fur-bearing animal. Like you legal by legal uh, prescription, we have to harvest all the meat off an animal. If you don't, you're like getting fined, probably not going to jail. But I mean, like there's stiff penalties for wanton, what they call wanton waste. I mean, you can lose your ability to continue to hunt. Yeah. And that's awesome. I mean, like if you kill a deer, skin it and eat it. Yeah. Coon is different in that they're managed as fur-bearing animals, Mm -hmm. so you can harvest the hide and not harvest the meat. Same as a beaver or a muskrat or a bobcat. Or a coyote. So anyway, so it was cool uh, really having coon cooked on purpose. Like the way we've eaten it was just kind of out in the field, like I said. Mm -hmm. But it was really good. And with all this stuff with with the COVID-19 coronavirus, uh, I watched this uh, video today about the Wuhan wildlife market, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping that the the general population does not equate any of that crazy stuff with what we're doing. And I think it's relevant to talk about that because we're sitting there talking about eating a raccoon, which yep. is not most people in this country don't eat raccoons. It's on the fringes for sure. It's on the fringe. So I want to be real clear or I'm hoping that it's a that that people aren't saying, "Hey, wait a minute, these people in China that were eating all these crazy critters are there not people that are doing that here in North America talking about me and you mm-hmm. This is way different than that. I watched this morning the video of this wildlife market in Wuhan, China. It'll blow your mind have it's you seen ha- it's, it? it's hard to look at you saw it, yeah, I mean they had like yeah, it was they had like huge python snakes like cut into like two foot sections did you mm-hmm. see that no i haven't but i've seen i've seen wildlife meat markets okay. before well like it was just someone like walking through this wuhan market with a cell phone mm-hmm. and like literally you can imagine like this one of these big pythons that's like 10 foot long and sure. big around your leg there was just this bloody table with like two foot sections of pythons you'd go to the next table and there would be a stack of Dogs, yeah, dead dogs that had had the hair burned off of them mm-hmm. sitting there. Uh, there were these giant bats that had been skewered 
that were that in the wings cut off, like the wings were in one pile and their bodies. I mean, it was bizarre. Wow. And you know that that they say that's where this coronavirus COVID nineteen originated was. I think they're saying now it came from a pangolin. And so yeah. I was talking to all this with Misty this morning. As I understand it, it wasn't that they ate a pangolin because she was like, "Well, did they eat? They eat it. They ate that thing and they got it." And I said, "No, you can eat." anything in the world as long as it's cooked well and you won't die yeah pro- probably close close are you close, yeah, yeah yeah i'm I'm bouncing this off of you like i mean you could probably i would say most i mean like you could eat a bat and if you had used sanitary means to harvest the harvest the meat mm-hmm. cook it cook it well done there's no anything in it like you i've got a plot pup out here that's yeah, yeah. just wearing out something um if you if you knew the if you knew the potential for what that animal could be carrying worst case scenario and you cooked it according cooked it with a method that would that would negate that yeah so you know like i would not eat medium rare coon meat no because i very much believe because they eat a very similar diet to like a bear and they're omnivorous, there's a potential they could be carrying trichinosis. For sure. You know, but I'd eat any it, bear or any coon if it was It's a non-issue. Yeah. It, those things die at like 145 degrees and we cook almost all our food to 160 at like minimum, unless it's a rare steak or yeah. something. Anyway, I told Misty, I was like, you can eat anything as long as it's sanitary, the meat is not spoiled, mm-hmm. and it's cooked to the correct temperature. And, uh, and I mean, I think that market showed that. I said the problem, from the research I've done, this COVID-19 stuff was, it was a live pangolin. Okay. And, and humans got it from that. From oh, like, okay. From a live one. Or from the process of butchering it. Mm-hmm. Because and and again, there may be more information that's better than this. But what I had, what I read and heard was that uh, that COVID nineteen virus pangolins basically have exactly what we're now getting. Oh, really? Okay. And so it was transmitted in one of those markets where there was a live pangolin, mm-hmm. and uh, and whether the person that was moving around the cage or the person that killed it and skinned it got it on but they didn't get it from eating it i guess that's you. my whole point in saying i that. got you so you can eat anything okay. that's what i'm saying <laughs> this is all relevant yeah um so we're going to talk about three things i want to talk about the coon hunt we went on last night i want to hear your perceptions of it because it was your first time to hunt yeah like that um ultimately i want to get to uh talking about uh, a deal that y'all did. Uh, so your brand is Black Duck Revival. So yep. like on Instagram, and that's kind of that's kind of your brand. You've been on the podcast before. You're an old veteran. Mm-hmm. So people know who you are. Um, but you you had a revival uh, where you had some people coming in from all over the country. Some of them were pretty familiar with hunting. Some of them weren't. Yeah. And we're not talking about this yet. Okay. So we're going to talk about the coon hunt first. But we're gonna. I want to talk about the revival. Okay. Because y'all just did that um, coon hunt. Um, tell me what, what was like, what we do, what, what was, what was like, what you thought it would be and what wasn't Hmm. or, or, you know, just what was your perception? Like tell people what we did and man. So we went out to, uh, some private land you had access to, uh, 
he's got most of that in agriculture it looked like cattle this is a cattle farm yeah and uh you know we pulled up there with a few buddies and your boy bear and we set jed and fern out and they ran around and sniffed and did some looking and it was raining yeah kind of drizzling down which is not opportune like i told you guys most of the time you just don't go coon hunting if it's raining if it's if it's raining and you're wanting to go deer hunting, you know, you're probably like, well, mm-hmm. maybe the deer will be moving. But usually coon hunting, you would just stay home. But you'd come up from Little Rock or, or yeah, that yeah, part yeah. of the world, and it was like, man, we got to go. So I wasn't too – I wasn't really sure. I have hunted in the rain, but it's just not that common. So I wasn't sure I wasn't sure if the coons would be stirring at all. Yeah. And they've got to be stirring – for the most part, for them to be able to find one. Now, they could tree a layup coon, mm-hmm. like we, like you got the question right on the test. But usually they got to come out of the trees and make some scent. But go ahead. Man, I, so I'd just say simply, like, overall, I had a blast. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I mostly associate hunting as, like, an individual activity, and it's right. it's very different than that. I associate hunting with being as quiet as possible and it's different than that but i mean i had a real blast i liked the dogs a lot you know i had heard you talk about plots before but you know and i'm a guy that i have dogs i've I've got a duck dog uh i like the size of those dogs uh they have good personalities i like the athleticism of them like when jed was jumping up that tree and really my thought i had you know i had two thoughts about it is i I thought one that they would just be making noise nonstop and it would drive me crazy to be like underneath me just rawr, rawr, rawr. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't the case at all. And it it was actually so different than what I thought because when you did hear them, it was exciting. Yeah. You know, and I was like, let's get over there to them. Yeah, yeah. Um I so I loved all of that. And I mean, I can just see, like, I was already in my mind. I was like, all right, I get one of these dogs. I could, two more <laughs> years, I could take the girls out. Uh, you were talking about that, you know, you could have them running squirrels in the day and coons at yeah. night. And as soon as you said that, I was like, man, I'm probably going to have to yeah, make you're, it happen. You're, you're, your countenance almost dropped when you, when you, I saw when you heard me say that. You were like, doggone it. Now I'm going to have to get one. Yeah, I'm going to get one and <laughs> I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness later. Um, but no, I, that, that short experience, I can see how folks can be all about that. And I could see how that could transfer to, to running, uh, you know, like a big carnivore or, I mean, I guess a bear is, yeah, a bear is an omnivore. I well, guess they're, 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 they're called both, a carnivore. Right? Yeah, okay. they're both. But, um, and I'll tell you something else I was thinking about because I've trapped, I don't know, 30 coons in my life, uh, live traps, but mostly footholds. And I have mixed feelings about it ethically uh, often. But my thought, I've, I'd had this thought last night. I was like, this is more ethical to me. This is more ethical than how I've been trapping raccoons. Really? Yeah, because... Mm. Uh, That's interesting. It was... Because, you know, the outside perspective is... You, you think of this this coon being this raccoon being terrified or this animal being terrified, yeah. which I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's afraid it's running. It's trying to stay alive, but you know, it got, I mean, they treat that 
they treated that first coon pretty quickly. We went over there, dispatched it. Um, if it was me, I'd rather go out that way than yeah. get my hand stuck in a steel trap and maybe be in there for, you know, half a day before the trap gets checked. You yeah. know, uh, now I'm not saying that I think that uh, trapping is unethical, but I think that I think all of this stuff we do, I think that I think that thinking about the ethics of it and allowing yourself to have a shift in what's appropriate for you or what makes sense for you is that's a mindful way to go about it. Yeah. So, and I'm not saying that I'll never trap another raccoon. I hear what you're saying, but I was, I really was, I had that thought. I was like, I, I think I feel better about killing this raccoon this way than the ways I've done it before. That's interesting. See, I've, I've never, I would have never even thought about it from that way, but, it, and I guess a perception too that people have sometimes is that uh, when you tree a coon, that it's like in some kind of trauma. Man, that that thing was fifty, sixty feet up in a tree. Mm-hmm. They don't move. They just sitting. I mean, they're just chilled out. Like they they have effectively used the biological mechanism that they have to escape escape predation. They have. They've done it. Yeah. They outran the dogs, climbed a tree. They're sitting up there happy as they can be. They're just like, when's the, when are these guys going to leave so I can crawl back down and go eating berries like I was before? You know? And then, obviously, we interrupt that by taking them. But sure. You, but you see, like, there's not – there's really not trauma, you know? I mean, and, and now they yeah, – You know, I don't know. I have – I've thought about I – re- I, still, I still continue to think about that because – but you know, here I think this is kind of what it comes down to, Clay, is that there is there has to be some acceptance as a hunter that you are that you're affecting the lifespan of, this, of this animal. You know what I mean? Uh, I actually don't. I don't usually say that I harvested an animal because I think it's sometimes it's it's almost disingenuous. Like what I did yeah. was I killed an animal. Yeah. But there can be meaning and nuance and beauty and nobility in that if I go about it in a way that is meaningful and nuanced and authentic and full of consideration. Yeah. Uh it's the it's what I bring to it. Uh I don't I don't feel like I've done something wrong if I kill a deer. But there could be way there are ways that I could go about killing a deer that would be very wrong to me. You know, right, right. I, the way that I try and go about it, I don't feel guilty. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't sometimes have kind of like emotional pangs uh, when when I'm hunting and I've been successful. But to me, that's part of nuance and consideration and just being a participatory member of, you know, society. And Andrew, you know, we talked about it like uh and I talked to a buddy of mine about this when we were snow goose hunting. Like you would never, I think it would be rare to have, to see a picture of like five deer just piled on top of each other on the tailgate of a truck. Like people would find something bothersome about that. But that's exactly what people do with ducks. You I know? see what you're saying. You know okay. what I mean? And I was talking to him, I was like, why would, why would the one 
be so bothersome or offensive to so many people, but they don't feel that way about ducks. And it's, it's really a, I think it's a, it's a form of speciesism. It's a way that people say that people that are completely against uh, eating red meat will eat fish. It's because it's so different from you that you yeah. can compartmentalize it. Yeah. You know, an insect, a fish, a bird, these right. are very different than us. You start getting into mammalian creatures and we even talked about it like a uh, raccoon is much more, its face is more emotive in a way we understand than a deer is. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you start, you start wrestling or, or wrestling. I've been in Arkansas a long time, man. You start wrestling <laughs> with these, uh, with these questions. And I think, I think that the, the consideration and, and the back and forth, that's part of it. You know, that's, that's part of you being, you being completely immersed in it and allowing yourself to feel everything and think about everything and grow and wax and wane, you know, that's life. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's life. Even in, even when you are participating in, yeah. in ending sentient life. What, what I'm hearing you say is that as hunters, not even as hunters, let me back that up. Let me back that way up. As humans, we, the reality of mankind is that our existence requires that we inflict trauma on something. Uh, it requires that, I mean, to be a human in 2020 means that something has died to give you a place to live. Now, whether sure. anyway, it could go back all the way to, you know, some urban person that says that's not true. Well, where you live used to be wildlife habitat mm -hmm. where, you know, the, 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 okay, you're a vegan. Well, the plants that you eat and the fruit and vegetables that took wildlife habitat from, you know, that ground was cleared from what it once was. The farming was practices are going to continue to perpetually end the existence. When you run a big combine through a field, you're grinding up birds and Absolutely. mice and all sorts of stuff. You know, I heard uh, Shane Mahoney the other day on a podcast say that if all of North America went vegan, like if, if, if all of a sudden the president was just like, you know what? It is law. Everyone will be vegan now. Mm -hmm. We're going to shut down all hunting, all meat production. They would have to clear a agricultural field. It's not one field, but you'd have to clear enough space, basically the size of Canada to feed all of us. Wow. And so his whole point was, is that being being vegan is not the answer for saving actual animal life because you would have to kill because I mean how many animals would you displace if you had ag the size of the country of Canada? That's essentially what he said. Yeah, wow. And so, you know, you would you would be extirpating bears and moose and caribou and all the songbirds and all of this and all of that. And insects. And you'd be affecting yeah. you'd be affecting the natural way in ways that we couldn't even fathom. Yeah. You know, every time we try to get rid of something, there's so there's so many repercussions that we could not anticipate. Yeah. Uh, we, we've just got to be, as hunters, we've just got to be okay. Yeah. So we were talking about like the evaluating, like the trauma, like this, like a coon would have, like being in a trap or being in a tree, treated by dogs. And essentially what we're saying is that we have evaluated that and we're okay with, with that. I mean, that's what we're saying, you know, 
I yeah. mean, and, and, and we're not an ethical, an ethical hunter, a thoughtful hunter, a thoughtful human is going to do everything within his power to minimize any kind of suffering or trauma. I mean, that, that is what the modern North American sportsman does. And, but we know that we, you know, we've got a goals. We went hunting last night and our goal was to kill a coon. Yeah. And you know, but I think too, is that it, with all that being said, I think it's okay to change your position. I think actually, yeah. um, to me, a real mark of an intelligent person is that they are willing to change their positions on stuff. And sometimes your position on 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 something changes situationally. You know, uh, like when I first started hunting deer, I I hunted deer uh, several times over bait. And while I understand the absolute necessity in many places to use bait as a way to harvest or kill enough deer to manage the population. I've decided for me as a personal choice that that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. It's okay that I changed in, in that pursuit. Yeah. You're not a flip flopper. Yeah. It's, it's all right to have a paradigm shift. Uh, that's what intelligent and thoughtful people do because as you pull in more information and as you immerse yourself in experiences, you find what's right for you. So I, I just want to say that because I think sometimes people think I did it this way and that's the way I'm always going to do it. I've met lots of people that have, you know, killed a bear or killed two bears. And then they decide that for whatever reason, they don't want to anymore. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they're indicting everyone who's hunting bears. Yeah. They're making a personal choice for themselves. Or they say maybe they had uh, killed a couple bears in the Ozarks on family land over bait. And then they decided that what they're looking for out of hunting is going to necessitate them going someplace else and trying it a different way. Yeah. Or they want to see, they want to see and hunt in a part of the country that doesn't allow baiting for whatever yeah. those management reasons are. Yeah. And so to get what they want out of that experience, cause like we talked about last night before we hunted, I'm not just hunting for food, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm hunting as a, as a really at its core as an existential examination of my existence and my understanding of that is going to change as I learn more, as I mature, as I meet different people, as I have different experiences. So yeah. anyway, yeah, that's good, man. That's good. You know what you said about like using the example of like Arkansas hunting over bait. That, that's essentially what I'm doing and have done for a long time. I hadn't killed a bear over bait in Arkansas actually since 2000, uh, 2006. Really? Yeah. That's been a long time, yeah. I will kill a bear over bait in Oklahoma, though. Okay. It's different. It's, 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 it goes back to that personal, like this personal thing inside of you. In Oklahoma, the access that I have to property, the distance it is to drive, my goals over there because – you know, we've got some good places where you can take some big bears. Mm -hmm. I'll hunt over bait in Oklahoma. In Arkansas, I have not killed a bear over bait in Arkansas, I think, since 2006. Wow. Uh, and people wouldn't know that unless they're really paying attention. I mean, now I've, I've killed bears over bait in Canada and, you know, lots of different stuff. But, yeah, pretty much in Arkansas, I'm interested in killing them in the national forest. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I won't do something different. At some point, but, uh, uh, you know, next year I may decide I want to take one over bait in Arkansas, but now we got to, we got to evaluate 
we got to evaluate ourselves constantly, I think. Yeah. That's what I like it. I like it, man. I like it. Um, what did, uh, so you listened to our podcast with, uh, Roy Clark, um, with the bear, uh, the hound hunting with bears. What was your impression of all that? Well, yeah, we were talking about it on the phone and I told you that I thought you were doing some, some really good work, like some low maxian. I was going to ask you what, I don't even know what that means. I don't know who that is. Uh, Lomax. So Alan Lomax did, I, I want to say it was, uh, some, I think it was, I want to say it was funded by like the WPA, like the works progress administration. Uh, you know, one of the, it was a, it was a economic incentive after the great depression. There oh, were okay. works progress administration projects like building roads and forestry, uh, uh, roads and roads and cities and painting post offices all over the country and all sorts of different things. But this guy took a recorder uh, largely through the American South and recorded like old blues musicians, mm. um, asked them about their experiences, you know, talked to people that had, uh, that were old enough that they had grown up in slavery or their parents had been slaves mm, and recorded okay. their music and recorded interviews with them and stuff. And I was struck by what you were doing in that interview because, I mean, we were talking about like, there's the cadence of his voice and the the words he used and his diction, like that's probably a dying thing. You know, there's yeah. in 50 years, there's going to be very few people that sound exactly like he yeah. does, you know? Yeah. And He's he's also bringing generational knowledge from what bear hunting was like, you know, 50 years ago to what it's like now. You're talking about before GPS collars, all the stuff you see on videos like that wasn't yeah. there. He was tromping through the Appalachian Mountains. Was He's over in the Appalachians. Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. He's yeah. tromping East through Tennessee. there. Finding, you know, he said that, you know, you might have to be out there all night trying to get your dogs. I just thought it was I thought it was really neat and and interesting. I. I, uh, I enjoyed, cause like even the guys that, I guess the guys that he had been taken out that had grown up going out with him, they're probably around our age. Yeah. Right? Most of those guys were in their thirties. Yeah. And they, they, they exist in a very different world than he was in at that age. You know, yeah. uh, the use of technology, the way they speak, all of that is going to be very different. Yeah. Excuse me. And so I just thought it was really important and interesting to, to put that information in a time capsule. Yeah. 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 Me too. You know, there's, there's not a lot of people, boy, it's, it's hard. To, it's hard to even understand what I'm trying to say because there's, there's, there's lots of people that bear hunt with hounds over in the, in Tennessee and mm-hmm. all over in that part of the world. But there's, there's not a lot of people that are as ingrained in it from a lifestyle perspective as him sure um and i don't think you could even do that in modern times and still be a functional human unless you were exponentially wealthy i mean it's like it's almost like he he devoted he's devoted his life to bear hunting with hounds Mm -hmm. i mean he has and um i mean and guys still do that i don't want to say that. there's guys listening to this right now that have have, i mean are are as hardcore as is possible for a human to be when it comes to that kind of stuff but he is a he's a relic He's kind of a relic, and even more about more about him than just the way he handles his dogs and his dogs and stuff. He's 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 kind of a relic. He really is. I was talking to a guy 
Well, I don't want to give away the next podcast. Um, actually, yeah. I was talking to Brooks Blevins. I think we're going to yeah, release yeah. this podca- his podcast before. We did a podcast with Brooks Blevins, this Ozark historian. Yeah. And, uh, and he gave examples of how people always do what we're doing with Roy Clark, like saying, man, he's the last of a dying breed. When he's gone, that's going to be gone. And he gave examples of even back in the 1800s how writers did that with people. Sure. And, you know, so he's like, there's always – there's always something that is really unique that is probably going to be lost and probably will that you move on. And he described, he was sitting there talking to me and said, you know, one day what you're doing will be like that. Like people talk about you. And he wasn't saying Clay Newcomb. He was just, he was just saying we're doing stuff now that people will kind of have the same feelings about. Absolutely. Interesting. But it's, I, man, it is so important. Like we talked the other day about those Foxfire Chronicle books. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, someone did something very similar in the 60s and 70s and went to Appalachia and talked to people. And there is stuff in those books that like we were talking about, like how you catch a possum and feed them on cornbread and milk to <laughs> clean them out yeah. or the uh, using a green stick to skin a coontail or even stuff like how to make a wooden wagon wheel is in those books mm. uh, because those people were relics in the 60s. But it's weird to think that the 60s were 60 years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. You've got multiple generations since then. And I just think that stuff like that is so important because, you know, and you did it different yesterday than I had seen it. I've always split a green stick halfway between and then pinched the tail between that. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, but. I see what you're saying. That That would be. If I hadn't read that in a Foxfire Chronicle book, you know, 12 years ago before I'd ever even hunted, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that. And I guarantee you, I show it to my girls, you know? And so they're using, they're going to be using information that's really probably hundreds of years old when they do that. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's value in that. There, there yeah. really is a lot of value in that. Yeah. Pretty unique stuff. Unique stuff. Um, Hey, tell me about uh, tell me about the revival. Okay, are we ready to jump to there? Yeah, yeah, we can. Do you have anything else to say about the hound stuff? No, man. I thought it was I thought it was really cool. I'm I hope to be able to do it again. Uh, And yeah, man. I like I said, I've tried hunting different things in different ways, and they don't all resonate with me. Yeah, yeah. You know, and. I think that as long as people are being ethical and thoughtful and legal about what they're doing, there's room for people to do things different ways. Now, I do think it's important that as individuals, we find what's right for us. But that could be extrapolated into any aspect of your life. That could be your marriage or how you raise your children or the kind of car you drive. Yeah. Uh, I think if you're thoughtful about it and you're willing to change your opinion on it based on new evidence and new experiences – then you're doing it right. Yeah, but yeah, man, I enjoyed it. You know, that's a good, I like what you said there. And it, it kind of goes back to that individual thing. Like if you can't explain with a clear conscience to somebody why you do what you do, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Yep. You know, like even like me hunting over bait, like people have heard me talk about hunting over bait and they're kind of like, oh, I get it. And it's, I think it's because the way I talk about it is the way I think about it. And it's like, I've thought about it and I have 
reasons and and you know i guess that could be applied in anywhere like if you can hunt deer over a corn pile and be able to look a non-hunter in the eye and truly tell them why you do that which is from a sincere place of, mm-hmm. man i've got i can only hunt on weekends it's perfectly legal i can be selective in the animals i harvest it's efficient i can get the animal to come right in it's not walking i mean there's a million reasons why hunting over a pile of corn it can be legitimate it's exponentially more honest and interactional than going to the grocery store and getting some you know commercially raised protein uh, and I will say this because I think that we get folks get caught up in us and them, whatever that might be. I have met very few people, like most of the people that I, you know, hang out with, I'm friends with, and that's kind of changing because I'm getting a broader friend group. But just traditionally, like I'm really about the only one who hunts. But yeah. it's very, very, very rare that. I can't communicate to someone that doesn't why I do and them not look at it as a positive. Yeah. It really is. I have not had, I've like, there's really only been one person that just thought I was a scumbag and kind of stopped being my friend because I started hunting. Really? Yeah. But almost everybody else is understands it. And I've seen people, I've seen people get past just tolerating it into enjoying it and appreciating it yeah you know maybe they don't want to do it like my dad has no interest in hunting but my dad likes that i bring him venison every year yeah you know and he uh you know the 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 statistics that i've read most recent statistics about the general population of the u.s like the high 70s percentage wise like 70 something to 80 percent of people approve of modern hunting if it's for food and the animals utilized Mm -hmm. like most people are okay with us hunting absolutely i mean i grew up in a house where we didn't have guns i wasn't allowed to have water guns until i was 10 years old really uh i remember the first time i ever saw i saw my grandpa's deer rifle in a closet when i was like six and i shook with terror and sobbed did you really oh man i was terrified i wish that was that gun was still around i'd love to have it but uh so I'm coming from that background, wow. but it's still like my mom was not hostile towards hunters. What I always heard was as long as they eat what they're killing, it's fine. Yeah. You know? And so, and that's, that's with, encouraging. You know, when I read the stat just a few weeks ago, I, well, not longer than that, but sometimes I, especially being in the bear hunting world, I get this perception that everybody's against me. Like I kind of have that persecution mm-hmm. mentality. And, and and I think in bear hunting, we have a unique challenge in that uh, most people don't just automatically think that someone's killing a bear and eating it. And so we're showing people, yeah, we are. Yeah. And it's actually, we're not just doing it to just because we have to. We are, I mean, bear meat is incredible. I mean, we, we, we're living off the stuff. So we're, we're, we're uh, you know, it, it's encouraging to me to see that that's, that people are, are approval of it, approving of it. I really do think that most people are. And, you know, it's just like anything else. Uh, often the loudest people are, are on the fringes in whatever, yeah. whatever you want to talk about, you know? Uh, and so those might be, those might be the folks that you're hearing a lot from, but yeah, I've, I really have had a, I've had largely positive experiences uh, introducing people to it. 
Yeah. Uh, and I'd even say that there's people in my life that had no experience with it when I started hunting, you know, 10 years ago, and that now they get a sense of pride from the fact that I do it. Like, it's, mm-hmm. really, it's really moved to that position. That's good, man. That's but, good. But anyway, yeah, so the revival. The Tell yeah. me about the revival. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I got this place in Brinkley, Arkansas called Black Duck Revival. And, I, you know, people ask me all the time, like, you know, what is your brand? What are you trying to do with it? And I'm not quite sure that I have the right answer for it yet. I'm, I'm hoping in the coming months to really be able to, to solidify that. But what I did know is that I wanted, I wanted to use it as a way to facilitate discussion. So what I did was just, you know, through social media, Instagram, I found a few people that I thought were really interesting. And I go back to this word of nuance. It's really important to me. They were interesting and nuanced and intelligent and thought-provoking, and they were coming from different backgrounds and different experiences. And so I invited a few people to come down to Brinkley. We hunted uh, speckle belly geese. We hunted mallards in the timber, and we just spent time together. We cooked wild game meals together. We ate, and we just talked about our different experiences. And we had women. We had people of color. We had folks that had been hunting for a long time, had been in the hunting industry for a long time. We had folks that had only been doing it for a couple of years. Uh, and we just, we just kind of came together and, and hung out and cooked and hunted and learned from each other. And man, it was, when it was all said and done, it was everything I could have hoped it would have been, you know, it was, it was super cool and super fun. We had some good hunts, which, you know, that's kind of like, if you're there to hunt, that's a social lubricant is having some productive hunts. (laughs) Uh, I got to kind of feel like an ambassador for how I hunt and where I hunt and where I live because mm-hmm. the the people that I brought in were from Colorado. I had two, uh, two ladies from Colorado. I had a guy from Folsom, California, you know, like them mm-hmm. coming to Arkansas was, it was something different. And, yeah. you know, some of them came with preconceived notions and, and stereotypes and, and thoughts about what it was going to be. Yeah. And, you know, it just and everything. There are some truths to that and there are differences between, there's big differences between Brinkley, Arkansas and Denver, Colorado, but man, it was just so productive and, and, and so positive. And it's, it really solidified in my mind that that's an event that I want to do every year. I'm going to try and get a little bit bigger and have a few more people, uh, this next year. And, uh, we did some film in Brent Reeves from drift driftless media or no reckless drift media. He did some filming for us. And we're going to have a video coming out kind of talking about it and showing some folks what we did. But, man, it was just a blast. Hurry up and get that finished, Brent. Oh, take your time, Brent. It's all right. Let's talk to Brent for a while. (laughs) But, man, it was was really a a Courtney Nicholson who came. She she works for uh, Hunt to Eat that a lot of people are probably familiar with. She used a term that I thought was so apropos. She said it was soul filling. Mm. That's really like, I felt like I came out of it, you know, richer. And uh, like I took Courtney and Crystal Egley, they had a little time before they uh, had to catch their plane. I took them to my house and introduced them to my wife and my daughters. And, you know, we've kind of continued the friendship. And yesterday. Can you, can you tell who was there and what they do? Yeah. Like, so, so Courtney. So Courtney, Courtney Nicholson works for uh, Hunt to Eat. Yeah, which is like everyone's seen their t-shirts. Uh, she's been in the, she's been like kind of in the hunting industry probably for the last decade. Super cool lady, really intelligent. Uh, 
she's got a real strong background in like film and videography and just I just can't say enough good stuff about her. And then there was a Crystal Egley who works for the she's a videographer for the Colorado DNR. And she's actually right now being featured on a on a video series they're doing called My First Big Game Hunt. And uh man, Crystal is a super strong personality, really committed to the things that are important about her. She kind of pushed me a little bit and stretched my, you know, she kind of challenged me in a couple ways, but in such a awesome and positive way. And I think so highly of her and she's doing really cool, interesting stuff as far as promoting hunting and the outdoors, you know, to people that might not kind of traditionally fit in that. So she's a, she's biracial. She's a person of color. She's a woman. She, you know, lives in, in the middle of Denver mm. and she's still wrestling with, you know, what she's comfortable with and getting over kind of maybe like a fear of firearms and just mm. doing so much really awesome, cool stuff. And then, uh, the other guy is named Brandon Goodwin on Instagram. He goes by the hunting student. He's a guy that came to hunting, I think just a few years ago. You know, he's a Northern California guy. He grew up mm. snowboarding and skiing mm. and he, he just found, you know, he found purpose in hunting and doing a very different style of hunting than I do. Like he's a Western hunter, Yeah, you know, like the first deer he ever killed was a big mule deer. Mm. Um, I think that was just past year. And he, he really focuses on kind of connecting other people in the hunting community. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he does produce content, but he's really good about like on Fridays, he does like a wild game uh, recipe thing where he brings all these awesome wild game dishes for, that people are posting all over the internet and puts them out there for people to see. Uh, he's just kind of, I think of Brandon as like a, just a conduit and a facilitator. Mm. Uh, and then we had like my buddy Ben Batten came through. He's a chief for the Arkansas Game and Fish. We had Brent there who's just got a ton of interesting knowledge and experience and was a professional duck guide for like 25 years. And so those are, those were kind of like, and we had a, we had a couple other, I had some friends of mine come through like my buddy, Nate, who the guy who taught me how to bow hunt, I got to have him on a speckle oh, belly nice, hunt. Nice. My buddy Kent, who's, you know, used to be, he's a welder. He used to be kind of like a semi-pro skateboarder. He came in yeah. and hunted with us. So it was just like kind of a really cool motley crew of people from disparate backgrounds that, that, that were able to see what they had in common. And what we had in common was way more than just hunting. That hunting was just a way that kind of brought us together. And then yeah. we could see all these similarities and, and strengths of each other. And like I said, nuance and, I don't know. I'm kind of talking in a circular nature now, but man, it was awesome. How long, how long did y'all, were y'all together? Two or three days? Yeah. Three days. Three days. They came down like on a Thursday afternoon. We hunted Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then they went back on Sunday evening. Yeah. That's cool, man. That's cool. Well, I look forward to, uh, to seeing whatever kind of video content you guys produce out of that. Yeah. And, no, uh, I mean, I've seen a little bit of preliminary stuff and it's cool. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be neat. I got yeah. to, uh, Brent was real cool with working with me and he let me do the music for it. So yeah. hopefully that kind of, I'm hoping that, you know, if I'm talking and we're doing this event and we're kind of showing my vision for stuff and then I made the music for it, that it, it really kind of lends itself to like a holistic product yeah. and, and very representational of just kind of my ideas on stuff. Yeah. Well, um, the, uh, 
the black bear bonanza. You were going to come to the bear bonanza, weren't you? Yep. Yeah. Well, I hadn't told you yet, but I was going to see if you'd be on the live podcast we were going to do. Oh, well. Because we're going to have like, uh, we're going to have like, we were going to have uh, six guys. Okay. And we were going to, we were going to talk about all things bear hunting in Arkansas, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you last year spent a lot of time trying to kill a bear in national forest. Yeah, I tried, and I, I mean, I was not successful, but. Uh... And that's kind of what brought us together, just talking about your hunting. So we know you're a waterfowl guy. We know you're, you know, so Arkansas is like divided between the Arkansas Highlands, which would be kind of in the northwestern section of Arkansas if you divided the whole state, and then the the Delta, the mm-hmm. Southeast Delta, which would be world-renowned waterfowl hunting and agricultural land pretty much. And so you're living more down the Delta, so you, you've you kind of made your living down there in the duck world and deer hunting world down there. So last year you, you started coming up into the National Forest in the highlands of Arkansas, and I was in, you worked hard, man, and uh, learned a ton, didn't you? Yeah, I learned, around, I learned a, a tremendous bear. amount. Yeah. And I found, you know, I finally found uh, a pile of fresh bear sign. And uh, that was really kind of my trophy for the, like, this is a weird thing, but I'm actually going to frame, <laughs> I'm going to frame a picture of this big pile of bear scat I found. There you go. Because that was, I kept saying that. That is why you're on this podcast, because <laughs> you are framing a picture of bear scat. <laughs> well, you know, it was, uh, and, you know, we talked on the phone uh when I found that you were, I think you were just landed in Montana and you were super generous and talked on the phone to me and gave me some advice for like an hour. But that, I want to say that that couple of days was the highlight of my hunting year. It really was because it was hard. And the information I gathered was, was well, was well earned. And, but now I've got it. And like I told you the other day, like I still think about, ducks all the time but i think about getting a black bear every single day i think about nice where i can find it down there in that bottom of that holler and you know where i'm hunting at and uh i think that i can be way more successful i mean like honestly i've still never seen a bear in the woods you know what i mean yeah so i'm kind of i'm kind of looking for the first bear i see is be the bear that i kill yeah. Which is a weird kind of dichotomy to think about as well. That's a weird. That'd be kind of a weird kind of hunt, wouldn't it? If you think about it, because like when you're deer hunting, I guess it's possible for somebody that's a deer hunter to kill the first deer they see. But if you're like a really dedicated deer hunter, well, that, that's not the way to say it. It would be cool if you killed the first. You probably have seen deer out in a field or there something. You, you know? Yeah. Or if you're a duck hunter, you've seen ducks before. Sure. Yeah, so, yeah. I've never seen a bear in the woods. Yeah, uh, but I'm ju- I'm just fascinated by them. I I think they're incredibly interesting. I think the story in Arkansas about them is fascinating, and and I think it's amazing too because if I am successful, and I, you know I'm this year I'm going to try and do it with a recurve. But if I'm successful and I can kill a bear down in the bottom of that holler, then getting that bear out of there will be an endurance test on us by its own yeah. right, you know? So when I, I, I know eventually I'll be successful. It will be steeped in so much meaning to me. Right. You know, that, uh, 
in a, in a way, you almost don't want it to happen yet because you want to keep drawing it out. But I feel like you. I feel like I busted hump hard enough that I'll be all right with with being successful eventually. You yeah. know, uh, man, I tip my hat to you big time for the amount of effort that you put into it, and your your mind frame is perfect. I mean, because that's that's the way that's the way I think about bear hunting in national forest here in Arkansas every single year. It, you know, it's almost like on a micro scale. You're, you're looking at this now from like a, you know, a career bear hunting deal. You know, if you never killed one, you're trying to kill one. It doesn't matter when it happens, but eventually it's going to happen. Like, you know, now I'm kind of like season by season thinking like that, you know, and it's, uh, you can't, you can't go out and be discouraged by lack of success. You well, just, it's, you know what I mean? Well, it's, you can't, you can't, because if you go out one day and don't find a single speck of bear sign of any kind, mm-hmm. that should actually encourage you because you have eliminated a big section off the map. Yes. And you are one step closer to the day when you do find bear sign. I mean, that's the way I think about it. Well, I would, just, I would say that in a different way. It's, I think it's about reframing what your definition of success is. Yeah. Like I did not kill a bear last year. I'm, Still never eaten bear meat, but I can tell the difference between a log that was ripped up by an armadillo or just rotted away and what's been ripped up by a bear. I can, I know for sure what bear scat looks like and if they're eating black gum or if they're eating acorns. I didn't know what black gum was before last year. Right. You know, I had never been in the Wachita Mountains really before. And, yeah. and I was telling you about like finding coon tracks and the algae and little Wachita Mountain, uh, just a little pool of water there on, on the side of a mountain. Um, I didn't know. I really didn't know if I could crawl down thousands of feet down in the bottom of that holler and come back out of it. And not only did I figure out I could do it, like I told you, I was driving multiple hours in the morning to go hunt. I'd hunt all day. I'd drive home yeah. in time to get the kids to sleep. I'd sleep a few hours and I'd do it again. I did like five days in a row one week, you know? That's crazy, man. So I... Now, I'm not going to do that next year. I'm going to take a, the first week of bow season off and just stay. Yeah. But every single day I was learning something about the world around me and about myself. So that's success. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Big time, man. That's cool. Super cool. I, I'm shocked at what you just said. That You said something that shocked me, and, I, and it makes sense. I just never thought about it. You've never had bear meat? Mm-mm. We can remedy that. Yeah, I've never, you know, I'm, you're the first person I've ever, no, you're the second person uh, I'd ever met, I think, that had, you know, eaten a bear. Really? I, the guy, the guy that introduced me to duck hunting, he had a bear, he had a color phase bear in his house, a, a bear rug up on the wall. And I asked him what the story was. And he said, man, I was deer hunting in the national forest and mm. I came across an oak flat and I could tell a bear had been in there. So I went in there the next day and got in there early. And he came in and I killed it. And he said, and it took me, I killed him at nine o'clock in the morning and it was nine o'clock at night before I got him back to the truck. Wow. And when he said that, I was like, I want to do that. That's everything <laughs> I want. That's everything about hunting that appeals to me. Yeah. And uh, it, it took years of me kind of building competency uh, until I thought that I could do that. You know, because like when I first started hunting, like my buddy said, Jonathan couldn't find his way out of a brown paper bag. I'd get lost in 100 yards in the dark. Mm. Uh, and I finally got to a point where I was like, you know what? I think I can start trying to do it. So 
And then it was just kind of serendipitous that we met each other and I've been listening to your podcast and stuff a bunch, but yeah, short answer is like, yeah, I didn't know a bunch of people and still don't know a bunch of people that have killed bears. Yeah. And I didn't know until I've been this office. I didn't know how many you had, you had gotten, you know, like, so you've been eating bear meat for 20 years. Yeah. You know, like there's probably not a whole bunch of people that can say that. It's more than you'd, more than you'd think, I think. Oh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's, I mean, just from looking at the content you produce, I can tell there's lots of people, but I guarantee you, I could go up to, in Little Rock, Arkansas, the most populated town in the state, I could go to 2,000 people and ask them if they'd ever eaten bear meat, and I bet you I wouldn't find five that had. Yeah. I bet you I wouldn't find two that had. Yeah. If I just went to the middle of downtown Little Rock and asked them, you'd probably find no one. (laughs) We're going to do a podcast, me and you, walking down the street. Ever eaten bear meat? (laughs) (laughs) Well... No, that's good, man. Well, no, I, I, I thought it was awesome the way you hunted last year, for for bears specifically, and it's 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 a lot of work, but uh, that's what makes it fun is that it's it's a super challenge, and you don't get immediate gratification very often. Very, you know, that being said, I've I've heard of guys that for the first time hunted like you hunted and mm-hmm. killed a bear. It like you know, there's been this kind of revival of a. Uh, well, it's not really a revival because we've never really done it quite like this. You know, historically, bears in Arkansas were hunted with dogs. I mean, back when we had bears. Yeah. So, you know, we had bears for 10,000 years, mm-hmm. okay? You know, from the last ice age to now. And, and then by the 1920s, 30s, 40s, there, you know, there was this window and there were no bears here effectively. You know, yeah. there's some bear, you know, the story. And then so all of a sudden now there's all these bears back. Well, the guys back in the 1800s, they were using hounds to kill most of their bear. Mm-hmm. You know, opportunistic deer hunter or somebody that saw a bear might shoot it, but they weren't creeping around the woods with a bow. Was Boone running dogs? Was Daniel Boone running dogs? Oh, yeah. He, he ran dogs. But okay. he, he, I mean, I mean, he killed so many bears. I mean, he was killing them however, however he could, but he absolutely used hounds. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that was the way they hunted them, you know. Um, they, uh, but, I say all that to say there's been this research. Well, I keep wanting to use the word resurgence. It's really not a resurgence. It's like we're kind of pioneering kind of a, not a new way to hunt them. It's not new, but uh, guys weren't slipping around trying to kill them back in the 1800s with a bow, just mm-hmm. in acorn flats, you know, but that's what we're trying to do now. And it's a, uh, so there's been this resurgence. So a lot of guys have reached out to me tell me about their stories and stuff guys in Oklahoma quite a bit too and there's one guy that hunted just the way you did and killed a bear opening morning scouted really that's awesome scouted found a I mean just he just found exactly what you want to find yeah you know found a wide oak acorn flat with a bear sign in it went in there first day killed a bear and he knew what he'd done though like he uh he I've never talked to the guy we just emailed back and forth Mm -hmm. he sent me a picture of the bear and uh, and he recognized that what he did was not normal, you know. I mean, it wasn't always going to be that easy. And I told him, I was like, "Man, you," I said, "You you drew the needle out of the haystack. That's awesome." Well, uh, you know, he might be he might have to chase success like that for another few years. I mean, maybe he's just he was born to do it too. But uh, man, you know, like I got lucky. The first deer I ever got was was not really that hard. Right, right. Uh, I'm fine with having to earn this. Yeah. Uh, and it'll, but you know, like you said, it took me 12 days to find a pile of bear scat. 
you know, 12 days of hunting from sun up to sundown to find a pile of bear scat. I hope that discourages everybody that's thinking they want to go do this. Yeah, stay out of the woods. Just at leave least it until, for me and Jonathan. At least until I get one. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. Awesome. Well, hey, anything, closing, closing comments, co- closing thoughts about anything we've talked about or anything you want to tell people? Uh, no, man, if, if anybody's not tired of listening to me talk yet, you can follow me at uh, blackduckrevival.com or on Instagram at blackduckrevival. And yeah. I was talking to Clay. I'm going to start a podcast here probably in the next few weeks. There you uh, go. We're, we're going to record probably the first episode this week here while we're on coronavirus lockdown at my house. And uh, so if you start following me on social media or on the internet, you can look forward to hopefully seeing that soon. I'm going to do a lot more writing and we're going to start doing a lot more video content. So uh, yeah, yeah, I appreciate you having me out, man. And having me uh, in your home. And like I told you before, man, you got a great family and just glad to be friends with you, bud. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Well, we got to keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. That's right. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.